द फर्स्ट क्वेश्चन भगवान आई हैव हर्ड दट जान द बैप्टिस्ट नियरली ड्राउंड हिज डिसाइपल्स वेन बैप्टाइजिंग दैम इज दिस ट्रू is this type of experience something through which a disciple must pass anandami it is true i know this fellow jan the baptist <laughs> in fact every master has been doing that it is absolutely necessary because the disciple has to pass through a death process unless he dies dies to his past dies to his knowledge dies to his beliefs he cannot be reborn and baptism is only symbolic it is the symbol of death and resurrection that's exactly what i'm doing here you cling to your beliefs political social religious philosophical you cling to whatsoever you have accumulated although it is all junk although it has not given you a single glimpse of truth but you cling to it somebody has asked that i have been initiated by a master 5 years before and now i am feeling deeply interested in you but the problem is can a man have two masters if your first initiation has opened the door to truth there is no need for me to work on you why waste my time i have so many other people to work upon if the first master has not been able to open the door or you have not allowed him to open the door or maybe who knows he was a master or not then why not drop him one cannot have two masters that is utterly stupid if the first has done the work then i am not needed if the first has not done the work for whatever reason he may be a pseudo master you may have been a pseudo disciple 
something must have gone wrong somewhere. One thing is certain, that that initiation did not work. He could not drown you. He could not kill you. You are still there. But you don't want to drop your old master and whatsoever he has taught to you. Now you are asking me, can a man have two masters? I don't accept such people. Because these are the wrong type of people. Sooner or later you will go to third person and you will ask, can a man have three masters? The first thing to remember here is, to be with me means you disconnect yourself with your past, whatsoever it is, your initiation, your master, your church, your religion. Unless you disconnect yourself, you can't be with me. To be with me, you have to be reborn, you have to be a new being, utterly fresh as the dew drops in the early sun. Less than that won't do. You have to pass through fire, and it is very difficult to pass through fire. Because one can see that the familiar is disappearing and the promised is far away. The promised land maybe may not be and the familiar is going out of the hands and the mind says it is better to have half the bread that you already have, then to lose it for the whole bread, which you don't have got, which is only a promise. A master is only a promise. A promise, promise of something that can happen. A promise of your potential becoming actual. A promise of a flowering. But right now you are only a seed and the seed cannot believe in the promise. It is very difficult for the seed to believe in the promise. The seed would like to remain the seed and yet be a flower. So we go on clinging with the familiar beliefs, systems of thought, ideology, and still we want to be reborn. It is like a child who wants to cling to the womb and yet want to be born. That is impossible. Either he has to be in the womb and die into the womb, because after nine months to be in the womb is going to be sure death. Are you he has to take the risk 
the adventures of going into the unknown. And certainly the child must feel the birth as death. It is death to his life as he has known up to now for nine months, the darkness, the soothing darkness of the womb, the warmth, the absolutely responsibility-free existence. Total rest, relaxation, and he has been floating, swimming, in a body temperature liquid. He has never lacked anything, always supplied by the body of the mother. Even before he needed, it was there, ready to be given to him. Now suddenly he is being thrown out of his home, into the unknown. Who knows what is going to happen? He is being uprooted. He clings. It is natural to cling. And that's exactly the situation when you are with a master. You have lived in a psychological womb. When you are with a master, he starts pulling you out of your psychological womb. It is far more difficult than the physical process of leaving the womb. Because you feel more closer to the psychological womb. You are a Christian, you are a Hindu, a Mohammedan. And you would like to remain that. And still you want to be transformed. Then you are in a double bind. Then you are split. Two masters can only mean a deep split in you. I am not here to create schizophrenia. No, one cannot have two masters. One is more than enough. You have heard rightly, Naveen, that John the Baptist nearly drowned his disciples when baptizing them. That's the only way to baptize. You ask me, is this type of experience something through which a disciple must pass? Yes, it is a must. Unless the disciple passes through it, he never becomes a devotee. And unless you become a devotee, you don't know what it means to be with a master. It is not an intellectual relationship. 
it is a deep merger with the being of the master it is something very existential the second question bhagwan i thought you knew everything i thought that's what being enlightened is about knowing but you don't know about women and that they trust precisely because they know each other's heart women's hate for women is a male myth invented to keep women separate and powerless who wants to be a man bhagwan i am totally upset how can you talk nonsense my mind is having a fit and so is my heart what to do prem judi you must be caring too much crap <laughs> that the women's liberation movement is creating you are too full of it next time when you come to me i will have to look into your eyes because when people are too full of crap up to their head their eyes are brown <laughs> and you must have some lesbian tendencies you say i thought you knew everything you are absolutely wrong i know nothing not knowing is the most intimate if you have come here with this idea you have come to a wrong person and to a wrong place we celebrate ignorance <laughs> we destroy all kind of knowledge our whole effort is to bring innocence back to you the innocence that you had before you were born the zen people call it the original face the innocence is intrinsic knowledge is given to you by the society by the people around you by the family innocence is yours knowledge is always of others the more you are knowledgeable the less you are yourself enlightenment has nothing to do with knowledge it is freedom from knowledge it is absolute transcendence 
from knowledge. It is going beyond knowing. That's why we started this series of talks with the great Sutra, not knowing is the most intimate. An enlightened person is one who has no barrier between him and existence, and knowledge is a barrier. Knowledge divides you from existence, it keeps you separate. Not knowing unites you. Love is a way of innocence. Innocence is a bridge, knowledge is a wall. Who has ever heard that knowledgeable people become enlightened? They are the farthest away from enlightenment. Enlightenment grows only in the soil of innocence. Innocence means childlike wonder, ah. The enlightened person is one who is continuously wondering, because he knows nothing. So everything becomes again a mystery. When you know, things are demystified. When you don't know, they are re-mystified. The more you know, the less wonder in your heart. The more you know, the less you feel the great experience of ah. You cannot say, ah, this. You cannot be ecstatic. The knowledgeable person is so much burdened, he cannot dance, he cannot sing, he cannot love. For the knowledgeable there is no God, because God only means wonders, ah mystery. That's why, as knowledge has grown in the world, God has become farther and farther away. Frederick Nietzsche could declare that God is dead because of his knowledgeability. He was certainly a great philosopher. And philosophy is bound to come to the conclusion that there is no God. Because God simply means the mysterious, the miraculous. And knowledge reduces every miracle into ordinary laws. Every mystery is reduced into formulas. Ask the knowledgeable person, what is love? And he will say nothing but chemistry.
attraction between male and female hormones. It is not more important than a magnet attracting iron pieces. It is the same. Like negative and positive electricity, men and women are bioelectricity. Now everything is destroyed. Then all love and all poetry and all music is reduced to nonsense. The lotus is reduced to the mud. The lotus certainly grows out of the mud, but the lotus is not the mud. It is not the sum total of its parts. It is more than the sum total of the parts. That more is God. That more is poetry. That more is love. But science has no place for the more. Science reduces every phenomenon into a mechanical thing. And do you know what science means? Science means knowledge. The actual word science means knowledge. Religion is not knowledge. It is just the opposite of knowledge. It is poetry. It is love. It is basically absurd. Yes, you can say that I am talking nonsense. If science is sense, then religion is nonsense. But that's the beauty of it. You say, Judy, I thought you knew everything. That is your thought, and I am not here to oblige everybody's thoughts. I cannot be according to your thoughts. I have more than one hundred thousand sannyasins. If I am to fulfill everybody's thoughts, I will be absolutely. torn apart into millions of pieces. I cannot fulfill your ideas about me. That is your mistake. And it is not too late. Either drop that idea If you want to be here with me, you are here with a paradoxical person, with a person who is trying to convey something mysterious to you, not knowledge. Who is trying to pour his 
experience of wonders and awe into your beings. It is more like wine than like knowledge, who is trying to make you intoxicated, who is trying to transform you into drunkards. Yes, for the rational person, it will look nonsense. That's what one of the most important thinkers of the West, Arthur Koestler, has written about Zen. He calls it all nonsense. If you look rationally, it is. But is reason the only way to approach reality? There are other ways, far more deeper, far more intimate. Not knowing is the most intimate. I am not a man of knowledge. Although I use words, I am not even a man of words. I am a man of few words. Will you or won't you? Your apartment or mine? Said the chick. Look, he said, if there is going to be such a lot of discussion about it, let us forget the whole damn thing. <laughs> I use words, but I am not a man of words. It is just out of sheer necessity. It is because of you that I have to use the words. Because you won't understand the word less. I am waiting eagerly for the day when I will be able to drop the words. I am utterly tired, because words can't convey that which I am. And I have to go on trying something which is not possible. Get ready sooner, so that we can sit in silence and listen to the birds, or to the wind in the trees. Just sitting silently, doing nothing, the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. That is going to be my ultimate message and my final work on the earth. You say, 
I thought that's what being enlightened is about, knowing. You cannot think anything about enlightenment. And whatsoever you think is bound to be wrong. It has nothing to do with knowing. It is a state of not knowing. But you don't know about women and that they trust precisely because they knew, they know each other's hearts. I know about nothing, what to say about women. I don't know even about men. So don't be worried about that. If you know what a woman is or what a man is, beware of your knowledge because that is not real knowing, it is just opinion that you have gathered. Yes, man has been propagating ideas against women. Now women are propagating ideas against men. It is the same foolish thing. And we go on doing this. We go on moving from one extreme to another extreme. Now you say, women's hate for women is a male myth invented to keep women separate and powerless. Man has created many myths about women. But now the women are doing the same. They are creating myths about men, which are as false as men's myths about women. But I am not here to decide which myth is right and which myth is wrong. I am not here to make you a propagandist for women or against women. My work consists in freeing you from man-woman duality. And now you say, who wants to be a man, Judy? If you really don't want to be a man, you would not have written this. It is just like the ancient parable of the fox who was trying to reach to the grapes and could not reach, the grapes were too high. She tried and tried and failed again and again. Then she looked around. Foxes are very cunning people. If anybody is watching, any journalist, 
any photographer, there was nobody. So she walked away. But a small hare was hiding in a bush. He said, Uncle, what happened? The fox puffed his chest as big as he could and said, Nothing, those grapes are not worth, they are not ripe yet, they are sour. Why you should write who wants to be a man? Deep down somewhere you must be hankering to be a man. Every man wants to be a woman, every woman wants to be a man. For the simple reason that every man is both man-woman and every woman is both woman-man. Because you are born out of the meeting of male and female energies, half of you belongs to your father and half of you belongs to your mother. You are a meeting of two polar opposites, two energies. The only difference between man and woman is this, that the woman has the consciousness of a woman and the unconscious of a man. And the man has the consciousness of a man and the unconscious of a woman. But both are both. That's why it is possible to be homosexuals, lesbians. Otherwise it would be impossible. This phenomenon has been happening down the ages, it is nothing new. The reason is simple, because the man is only half man and half woman. The woman part is hidden deep in the darkness. But the conscious part can become tired. And when the conscious part becomes tired, the unconscious takes over. Hence, he may have the body of a man, but he starts functioning like a woman. And the same happens to a lesbian. On the surface she is a woman, but deep down the unconscious male energy has taken possession. Things have become upside down. It will affect her physiology too. There are few lesbians here. Their physiology is bound to be affected by their psychology because psychology and physiology are not two separate phenomena. They are joined together. 
mind and body are not two. You are mind-body. So whatsoever happens in your physiology affects your psychology. That's why hormones can be given to you and your psychology can be changed. Now we know a man can be changed into a woman. A woman can be changed into a man. And this is my observation that in the coming century millions of people will change their sex. That will become something avant-garde. That will become something very progressive. That will be a kind of new freedom. Why remain confined to a man your whole life? When you can have both the worlds, if you can afford, you can change your sex. For a few years you remained a man and you looked at the world from the male's viewpoint and then you go for a simple operation and you are changed into a woman. Now you can look at the world through the feminine eyes. And it is possible a man may change many times. If the process becomes simpler, and it will become simpler, that's the whole work of science, to make things simpler and simpler. If the process becomes very simple, millions of people are bound to change. It will release a great freedom in the world, but a great confusion also, a great chaos also. One day suddenly your husband comes home and he is a woman. <laughs> or your wife returns from a holiday and she is no more a woman. Because each is both. Hence the desire to be the other is in everybody. Judy, it must be there and very insistently there. Hence you are writing, who wants to be a man? Judy wants to be a man. I don't know about anybody else. And you ask me, Bhagwan, I am totally upset. That's good. <laughs> so I am succeeding. I want you to be completely uprooted, upset, disturbed. I want to create a chaos in you because only out of chaos stars are born. You ask me, how can you talk nonsense? What else? <laughs> Sense cannot be talked. Only nonsense is left.
So I don't take it as a criticism. It is a compliment. Many, many thanks for you. At least you are talking some sense. You say, my mind is having a fit and so is my heart. What to do? I don't think anything can be done now. It is too late. You can't go back. I will haunt you. You can only go ahead. Drop all these ideas that you are carrying with yourself. This antagonism about men. Drop all these ideas. I am neither for men nor for women. I am only for transcendence. And don't take my jokes seriously. You are such fools <laughs> that even jokes you can't take playfully. Just another woman has written, Bhagwan, you have been talking too much against women. You call them other day big mouth. Now this woman simply proves that she is a big mouth, nothing else. <laughs> Nobody else has felt offended. A joke is a joke. But why you are so touchy? Now this woman must have a big mouth. At least her husband must be telling her again and again, you big mouth, shut up! <laughs> and now she comes here to hear something beautiful said about her. And I tell a joke and again that big mouth comes in. Don't take jokes seriously. In fact, don't take anything seriously. You miss the point if you start taking things seriously. Even scriptures have to be taken non-seriously. Only then you can understand. Understanding has to be with a deep, relaxed, non-serious, playful attitude. When you become serious, you become tense. When you become serious, you become closed. When you are playful, many things can happen, because in playfulness is creativity. In playfulness, 
you can innovate. But your ideas are continuously there. You can't put them aside. Judy, now nothing can be done. You are a sannyasin. Now, being a sannyasin means you are neither man nor woman. Finished. That game is finished. The third question, Bhagwan, are not all people really the same? Sudhaso. Essentially, yes. But accidentally, no. At the center, yes. At the circumference, no. Essentially, we are made of the same stuff called God. But on the circumference, God comes in every shape and size, in every color, in every form. There is much difference. And it is beautiful, because if people were really the same, both on the center and the circumference, the world would be a very boring place. But it is not a boring place. It is immensely interesting. It is immensely beautiful, rich. And the richness comes because of variety. No two persons are the same on the circumference. Although everybody is the same on the center, not only people, but trees and rocks, they are also the same at the center. Call that center the soul, then it will be easier for you to understand. Our souls are the same. There we meet and are one. But our bodies and minds are different. There we are separate. And no effort should be made to make us similar on the surface. Down the ages people have been trying to do that. That creates only fascism. That's what Adolf Hitler was trying to do. That's what happens in every army. We try to make people even on the surface similar. In the army names disappear. Numbers take their place. If a person dies, you read on the board, number 14 has fallen. Now number 14 has no personality. Anybody can replace number 14. Anybody can be given number 14. 
Number 14 is replaceable. But the person who has died, is he replaceable? Can anybody in the world ever replace him? Who will be the husband of his wife? And who will be the father of his children? And who will be the son of his old parents? And who will be the friend of his friends? Number 14 cannot do that. Number 14 is perfectly okay in the army. He will carry the gun and he will do the same things, the same stupid things that the other number 14 was doing before. But as far as their real personality is concerned, number 14 is a different person. All the military leaders of the world have been trying to force a certain pattern on people. They would like machines, not men. They would like God to make men the way four cars are, four cars, cars are made on an assembly line. So similar forces go on coming. God does not work with an assembly line. He creates each individual with uniqueness. Sudaso, so you have to understand two things. One, the variety, the difference. And love the variety and love the difference. Momdans have been trying to convert the whole world into one religion. Hindus have been trying the same. Christians have been doing the same. Buddhists have been doing the same. The whole effort is to make all the world similar. There are all Christians and Christians. It will be a poor world where no temple exists and no mosque. Where there are only churches and churches. And the same prayer and the same scripture and the same silly pope. It won't be good. It is beautiful that there are 300 religions in the world. More are needed. In my vision, each person should have his own religion. There should be as many religions as there are people. Only then this conflict, continuous conflict will stop. This fight between religions will stop when everybody has a religion and it is something unique like your signature. Like the print of your thumb. Unique. 
then there is no problem, no conflict. Nobody will try to convert. You don't try to convert people that make your signature just like me. In fact, if somebody makes, you will inform the police <laughs> that this man is trying to imitate. Religion should be a personal, intimate phenomenon. But there are people who want to change the whole world into Christianity or communism. They want to make the whole world Catholic or Mohammedan or Hindu. Mohammedans say there is only one God and only one prophet of the God, that is Muhammad. Then God seems to be very poor, just one prophet. Cannot he create more prophets? Muhammad has not exhausted all the possibilities. Nobody can exhaust. Neither Buddha nor Jesus. They are all unique peaks. But no peak can exhaust all the peaks. Himalaya has its own beauty. But it it is different from the beauty of the Alps. And Alps has its own beauty, but it is different from the beauty of the Vindhyas. Each mountain has its own beauty, each peak has its own beauty, and it contributes to the richness of the world. I would not like all people to become Christians or Hindus or Mohammedans. I would like everybody to be free from these prisons. Everybody to be just himself. This is a fascist idea that everybody should be like everybody else. And this fascist idea is being imposed in different ways on different aspects of humanity. The heterosexuals would not allow anybody to be homosexual. Why? Who are you to decide? Who has given you the right to decide? If two persons are feeling joyous in being homosexual, it is nobody's business to interfere. But every society interferes. Just the other day, Aditya had said that Hamid has suggested that was I should not think of turning into a gay person. Hamid must have joked. And when I talked about it, Hamid was very much disturbed that what we people will think about me now. <laughs> he must have been joking with Aditya. 
Now he is very much disturbed about his reputation. <laughs> and of course, he is our Ayatullah, Hamidullah, Khomeiniak. <laughs> so his prestige Even Divya wept <laughs> when she heard that Hamid has invited Aditya. <laughs> he must be joking because Iranians are very much against homosexuality. In Iran, the punishment for homosexuality is death. Although, because of this punishment, more Iranians are homosexual than anybody else. <laughs> because when something is so dangerous, people become interested naturally. There must be something in it. When punishment is death, that means there must be something higher than life in it, more than life in it. It is worth taking the risk. But why people should be worried about others? About everything. The society remains alert. Nobody should have his own individual way about his sex, about his love, about his clothes, about his way of talking, manners. Every society imposes a fascist rule on its members. It destroys much that is beautiful. Sudha, so you ask me, are not all people really the same? Not as you know them. The pretty coed nervously asked the doctor to perform an unusual operation, the removal of a large chunk of green wax from her navel. Looking up from the ticklish task, the physician asked, How did this happen? Well, you see, doc, said the girl, my boyfriend likes to eat by the candlelight. <laughs> Nothing is wrong in it. <laughs> this should be nobody's business. If somebody wants to eat by the candlelight, he should be allowed. And where can you put the candle? <laughs> the best place seems to be the navel. So natural. Some idea.
Abby and Mel talked of their no-account sons. Abby said, my no-good son, I give him a job in my clothing business, I give him $50,000 a year, a new car, a beautiful apartment, and what does he do? He stays up all hours of the night, comes into work 11 or 12 o'clock, and plays around with the models all afternoon. You think you have got trouble? Mel said, my no good son is worse. I give him a job in my clothing business. I pay him $50,000 a year and give him a new car and a beautiful apartment. And what does he do? He stays up all hours of the night, comes in 11 or 12 o'clock and plays around with the models all afternoon. What is worse about that? Abhi questioned. You forget, Mel replied, I am in men's clothing. <laughs> On the circumference, people are different and they should be different. And everybody should maintain his individuality on the circumference. One should never compromise for any reason. Then only we can create really a democratic world. Real democracy means that the mob, the crowd, is no more in control of the individual life. Democracy is less a political phenomenon than a religious phenomenon. It is far more important than politics. Democracy is a totally new vision of life. It has not yet happened anywhere. It has yet to happen. Democracy means each individual has the right to live according to his light. He should not be prevented unless he becomes a disturbance or a nuisance to others. He should be allowed every freedom. In all the aspects of life, that's my vision of a real a democratic world. That's how I would like my sannyasins to function. No interference in anybody's life. A great respect has to be given to the other. But on the center everybody is the same. When you meditate, you move towards the center. In the deepest moments of meditation, all differences disappear. You are universal there, not individual. And you have to be both individual and universal. And you have to be very flexible and fluid between these two. As easy it should be as you come out of your home, out of your house. When it is too cold inside, you come out. You sit in the sun. When it becomes too hot, you go in. It creates no problem. You just go in, you come out, 
there is no problem, it is your house. A person should be capable to live on the circumference and at the center easily. He should be able to move from the marketplace to the meditative space and from meditative space to the marketplace with no problem, playfully, easily, spontaneously. The fifth question, Bhagwan, most of my early life was spent in deadening myself to unbearable punishment. The deadening was entirely necessary for me to survive those times. But those days no longer exist, and after thirty-two years I am terrified and lack the courage to go within. From where is the source of forgiveness? And Bhagwan, what kind of foolish name have you given me? Deva Prem, all names are foolish. That's why I have to explain the name to you, so it at least looks that it is not foolish. <laughs> I have to give it beautiful meaning. Otherwise names are names. They are just labels. Deva Prem means divine love. What a beautiful name I have given to you. But still names are names. There is an ancient Chinese ceremony in which the parents of a child choose the baby's name. As soon as the baby is born, all the cutlery in the house of its parents is thrown in the air. The parents then listen to the falling knives, forks and spoons and choose a name Ping, Cheng, Tang, Pung, Chung. That's also perfectly right. That seems to be a wise way to find out the name, as if God Himself has chosen. And that's how I go on choosing your name. Do you think there is much esoteric, <laughs> secret knowledge behind it?
nothing of the sort. Just anything. And I make a name out of it. I don't even think twice. But I can understand why you feel that the name does not fit to you. You have become a closed person and love has become difficult. It happens to many people, in fact to the majority of people, more or less. The child has to become unloving, unspontaneous. He has to deaden his sensitivity just to survive. Every child, more or less, the difference is only of degrees. Every child has to learn tricks to survive. And the basic trick is never be spontaneous. Be formal. Never be natural. Because your spontaneity is bound to be punished. And your formality praised, rewarded. The parents enforce a subtle strategy. They create fear in the child. If he says the truth, nobody wants the child to say the truth. <coughs> and the child <coughs> yet is not capable of lying, but he has to learn. When Cleo's parents threatened to forbid her to see her boyfriend unless she told them why he had been there so late the night before, she began to talk. Well, I took him, him into the loving room and, that is living, dear, said the mother, you are telling me. Children are careful watchers, observers, what is happening all around. Of course, their senses are very clear, unclouded. They see the, the truth immediately. You cannot cheat a child. She knows it immediately, intuitively. And he is so innocent that it is impossible for him to be formal. But he has to be formal to survive. And man's child is very helpless. It is because of man's child's helplessness that our whole civilization exists. We can manage, mold 
the child in every possible way, whatsoever we want. Children are not supposed to say things that they know. They know much more than they ever tell you. They pretend to be innocent because you don't want them to know more than is taught in the school, than is taught by the preacher, than is taught by you. And they know certainly more. They move in society, in life, with keen, alert senses. They are watching everything, whatsoever is happening around. But they learn <coughs> one thing, sooner or later, that they have to be diplomatic. With the grown-ups, you can't be true honest, sincere. Three young French boys were spending the summer in the country. One afternoon they were strolling through a field when they happened to see a couple lying under a tree, locked in a loving embrace. Madhya exclaimed the youngest boy, who was only six, those people are having a terrible fight. <laughs> but no, more petty, replied the more sophisticated nine-year-old, those people are making love. True, agreed the oldest boy, a lad of eleven years, but what amateurs. But children cannot say these things to their parents or before their parents. They know much more than you think they know. They are so alert, so available to life. They are so open and vulnerable. They go on allowing every sensation to reach into their being. But they have to deaden themselves sooner or later. They have to become stiff. They have to become closed. They learn one thing that unless they follow their parents, their priests, their politicians, they will have to suffer much. Respectability is only for those who are obedient. Deva Prem, you say, most of my early life was spent in deadening myself to unbearable punishment. The deadening was entirely necessary for me to survive those times. But those days no longer exist, and after thirty-two years I am terrified and lack the courage to go within. Now there is no need to be terrified. 
that has to be understood you can snap out of it it is only just an old habit a little intelligence and that much intelligence everyone has if you had the intelligence in childhood to deaden yourself to survive you are an intelligent person now neither the parents are there nobody is forcing anything on you nobody is punishing you it is just an old fear a memory you can snap out of it you don't need a primal therapy that for 3 years you have to go screaming against your parents that is not going to help that is simply stupid if it takes 3 years to shout and scream at your parents then you will come out of it that means you don't have any intelligence and what is the guarantee that just by screaming for 3 years and shouting at your parents you will become intelligent i think you will be less intelligent than you were before Three years of screaming and shouting, you will lose any intelligence that is left by your parents in you. There is no need. One has simply to see that those days are over. Meditation is enough. Meditation means seeing. becoming aware that those days are over and <coughs> the fear is no more there nobody is going to punish you it is just an old habit snap out with as less fanfare as possible don't make much fuss about it because you make much fuss about it so many therapies have evolved they just are helps for you so that you can make fuss scientifically so that your fuss is rationalized but they are not needed by intelligent people intelligent person is one who can see that it is no more night it is day why you are afraid of darkness do you need first to scream for 3 hours against the night and the dark and the fear that will be utterly stupid that will destroy the day why waste it the night is no more that's why in the east we have not developed any therapeutic methods like the west for the simple reason 
because we came to understand one thing that all that is needed is a little intelligence and everybody has it and meditation helps the intelligence to become sharp just seeing is enough seeing brings transformation and when transformation comes without any long process it is far more deeper when it takes a long process it means it will remain superficial so i have not come across a single person yet whose primal therapy has totally succeeded it can never succeed psychoanalysis has not been able to create a single person who is totally psychoanalyzed even sigmund freud was not in that totality Genov is not really what he is talking about the primal man the primal innocence he is not you can see in his face all kinds of tensions anguish anxiety it is so apparent he needs few years of screaming more and then to i don't think those tensions will disappear they may even become more subtle more nourished because if you scream for years remember you are practicing it too it is a kind of practice kind of cultivating it then you become addicted to it without screaming for few hours you won't feel good then it is a intoxicating process a kind of auto hypnosis yes screaming one hour every day will make you feel a little relaxed but it is a stupid kind of relaxation seeing is transformation that is our experience in the east all the buddhas in the east have given only one meditation watchfulness awareness now deva prem you know you are aware how this fear has arisen in you out of 30 years fear continuous fear of punishment you have become closed encapsulated and you are always on guard you cannot relax you cannot be true you cannot be honest you cannot the say the 
thing that you want to say, you cannot do the thing that you always wanted to do, you know. And now, it was right in those years, you behaved intelligently, nothing was wrong, otherwise you would not have survived. Now you have survived, get out of it, it is no more needed. The disease is no more, why go on carrying the bottles of medicines and prescriptions? Do you need a therapy to throw the bottles and the prescriptions? Will you go to a therapist and say that now the disease is no more, but I can't leave this prescription? that I go on carrying, and these bottles, I don't need them anymore. How to drop them? Is any how is needed? No how is needed. Go to the Rotary Club and donate them. <laughs> they collect medicines, etc which are not needed by anybody else. Their motto is, we serve. So you help them serve people. It is very simple to come out. But why people make so much out of it? because that is part of your ego. You don't want it that it should be so simple. Thirty years of life and I am making a joke of it. You would like to pay some therapist good money and you would like to invest some time, that feels good. It makes you feel important. In fact, in the West now, people brag that they have been in psychoanalysis for three years or seven years, and somebody brags that psychoanalysis is out of date. I have been in gestalt therapy, in primal therapy, and there are groupies now who go on moving from one group to another group. Their whole life consists of moving from one group to another group. Many groupies come to me and they say, we have done all the groups. And they say it in such a way, as in the old days, people used to say that we have fasted, prayed, and we have sacrificed all our joys, and we are saints. In the same way, this is a new kind of holiness that is arising in the world that I have passed through all kinds of groups. And I look in their eyes and they say, and nothing has happened. 
they are telling that my problems are far more complex, far more deep-rooted than these therapies can do. They can't help me. I'm no ordinary person. My problems are extraordinary. People enjoy saying it. I see a light in their eyes when they say, nobody has been able to help me. Bhagwan, can you help me? <laughs> they are giving me a challenge. All that they want is to add one more name in their list, that I have been to this guy too and he cannot help. My problems are such, not ordinary problems that anybody can help. People brag about their diseases to remember. They may have just some ordinary disease, but who wants to have some ordinary disease? Have you ever watched your own reaction when you go to the doctor with a throbbing heart, thinking it is cancer? And he says it is nothing, it is just common cold. Have you observed? You feel a little sad. <laughs> just a common cold? A desire arises to visit another doctor. <laughs> you and a common cold? You are not a common person. How can you have a common cold? Ego is such that it thrives on every kind of thing, right or wrong. So don't be much worried about it. It is past, it is finished. It slip out of it and without making any noise, without making any ceremony that you are getting out of it. Just start being again alive, sensitive, as you had always been in your childhood. That is your nature, so it can be reclaimed easily. What you have learned is not your nature, so it can be unlearned very easily. The last question. Bhagwan, are all the generalists blind? Cannot they see the truth? Why are they continuously spreading lies about you? Nisa, the profession of a journalist is such 
that it lives on lies. Truth is not a news. Lies are newses, beautiful news. Bigger the lie, better the news, because it has some quality in it, the quality of creating sensation. Journalism lives on lies. If journalists decide only to be true, there won't be so many newspapers, so many magazines, and there will not be much news either. Truth you can write on a postcard. I have heard that in heaven there are no newspapers. because there is no news ever happening. Jaj Banarsa has defined news as when a dog bites a man, it is not news, but when a man bites a dog, it is news. In heaven, no man bites a dog. In the first place, it is very difficult to find a dog there. In the second place, nobody is interested in biting anybody. So what news you can have? But in hell, they have really great newspapers. And their circulations is of millions. They have news there. Every day, every moment things are happening. Everybody is biting everybody else. When journalists come, they come to find something sensational. If they cannot find, they have to invent it, otherwise their coming and going has been useless. And if a journalist comes again and again back to his office without any news, his job is gone. Either find something sensational or invent, journalism depends on invention. And then slowly, slowly, journalist starts having a certain kind of approach towards things. He immediately looks the negative. He can't see the positive because positive is not his business. It is like a shoemaker looks only at your shoes, not at your faces. What he has to do with your faces? In fact, looking at your shoe, he knows your whole biography. Just a real shoemaker looking at your shoe can say everything about your life 
far more accurately than any astrologer can do it. The condition of the Sue will show the condition, financial condition in which you are. If you have to walk too much, that will show that you don't have a car. That don't you don't have any money. The shoe will say so many things. The shoemaker looks only at the shoe, and the tailor looks only at your clothes. And the doctor looks only at the diseases. You bring a perfectly healthy man to a doctor, and you will be surprised. He has found many diseases. I have heard that one doctor friend of Picasso had come to visit him. Picasso had just finished a portrait. He invited the doctor friend to see the portrait. He looked, he looked from this side and from that side, and then he asked for a torch. In the daytime, because he was puzzled, but he was intrigued also, so he gave him a torch. He looked in the eyes of the portrait and he said, "Pneumonia." A doctor is a doctor. His profession gives him a certain eye. The journalist comes here with a certain eye, with certain fixed ideas, prejudices. He comes to pick up. On something negative, which can become sensational, and then of course he can find. And if he cannot find, he can invent. And they look only from the outside. They are afraid to to get involved deeper. Few journalists have got involved. Once they get involved, they are no more journalists. You can ask Satyanand. He was a famous journalist in one of the most important magazines of Germany, Stern. He got so much involved. He didn't function here like a journalist. He tried to know things from the inside. He participated into groups, into meditations, and then <laughs> he became a sannyasin. Stern 
refused his story to publish because they said you are no more a journalist now you have become part of this orange movement so whatever you will say will be favorable for months he had to insist that i have worked hard they cut his story almost to half they destroyed his whole story distorted the whole story and only then they printed and he lost his job now he has come here forever there are few other journalists also at least a dozen subhuti is here and others are here a journalist is taught by his profession to always remain at a distance look from the outside and from the outside you can never know how things are a pretty young woman was traveling in a train across texas a deeper a dapper looking man walked up to her and whispered something in her ear whereupon she gave him a stinging slap in the face a tall texan seated across the aisle stood up and asked her is this man molesting you ma'am he certainly is she replied he just offered me 10 dollars if i would go with him to his sleeping compartment without hesitation the texan pulled out his pistol and shot the man <laughs> good god cried the woman that is no reason to kill him i will kill any man replied the texan who tries to raise the prices in texas <laughs> if you look only from the outside you will have never thought about this what is inside in the mind of the texan you would have thought him a great saint or something but the journalist has to keep a distance he thinks by keeping a distance he will be able to know better no he will only in gather information bits of information in fact irrelevant unconnected with each other because he has no approach to the center and he is going to distort it more to make it more sensational a group of rajneesh sanyasins <laughs> in bonn germany were taking a boat ride down the rhine river when they noticed that a well known journalist was aboard the boat they decided to do something to give sanyasins a more positive image in germany <laughs> so before the eyes of the journalist they stepped off 
unto the water and did a whirling Sufi dance all the way around the moving boats. <laughs> then completely dry, they climbed back into the boat's deck. The next day, the sannyasins eagerly scanned the newspaper to see what the journalist had written about their fantastic feat. There in the back pages, they found a small article with the headline, When will Rajinish Sanyasins finally learn to swim? <laughs> Enough for today. <laughs> <laughs>